Welcome to season six of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. This season features eight sessions from COVID-19, the orthopedic recovery, a virtual summit powered by DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. It was streamed live on May 29th, 2020. The summit was a global conversation on the challenges of resuming patient care in the context of an uncertain future and an ongoing pandemic. Let's join over 1,000 registrants from around the world and the world-class speakers DocSF is known for on the DocSF virtual stage. Welcome back. Welcome to session eight of the COVID-19, the Orthopedic Recovery Symposia. Powered by the Digital Face Conference San Francisco in partnership with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and the UCSF Department of Orthopedic Surgery. This session is titled Pandemics, Floods, and Earthquakes. It's good to be agile. We're joined again by, thank you, Tom Barber, who is the Associate Deputy Physician Chief of Perioperative Services at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Tom Mills, a former board member of the Academy and chair of its advocacy committee. And of course, Shauna Butler, who is my co-host and uh, entrepreneur extraordinaire in the nursing world and, and also host of her own podcast, uh, See You Now, which I highly recommend. Just real quick, just uh, I also want to say that although this is the last official section, we do have three really excellent symposia coming on immediately after this from our partners at Johnson Johnson, Zimmer Biomet, and uh, Modern Medicine. and. Uh, those uh, sessions are going to be focusing on getting down into the more nitty-gritty aspects of delivering care through some of the digital platforms these companies have built. So with that uh, little uh, summary, let's get into pandemics, floods, and earthquakes. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> Liars and lions so and tigers and bears. Oh, my. <laughs> right. So wh- why, why, what's this talk about? At the end of the day, the question really comes up as to what can we learn from the past that we can apply to the future? What, can we, what have we learned in this past few months that really gets us thinking again about how to handle very complex situations that arise that could be a pandemic, but it could be an earthquake here in San Francisco. It could be a flood in the Midwest. It could be a tornado. In Tornado Alley, it could be uh, raising floodwaters in the, in Florida. So at the end of the day, this still require a rapid response, a change in the way we deliver care, a complete rethinking of our business structure. So that's what those are the, session, the topics we wanted to address. We're looking for all of the answers, Tom. Yeah, no problem. Have, I right? can do that easily. Yeah, we thought this is a really <laughs> tough topic. Yeah, that's just, what we need: flexibility. Yeah. Flexibility. <laughs> Well, it is interesting. I was actually two days ago was part of a conference that was done by the National Academy of Medicine. And they they brought in public health officials and FEMA and they were talking about, okay, so we are heading into a summer and our summers. That's when we have our tropical storms coming in. We have our fires. And so all of those things are being planned for only now they're being planned for from the standpoint of we're in the midst of a pandemic. And so they raise these really interesting questions. What happens? We've just been telling everybody shelter in place. And now we're saying evacuate. (laughs) (laughs) And when we tell people to evacuate, we tell them to go into shelters. How do you socially distance in a shelter? When we think about the way we've had our response teams, we frequently had response teams where we bring firefighters in from different regions. Well, do you really want to do that? You know, so it was, I mean, I have to say when I was listening to this, I was just getting a headache. And then I think the other pandemic, Tom, that I would love to have you speak about is the mental health pandemic. 
you know, the loneliness, the isolation. So we're, we've, we've already had that challenge. We, I think we're more open and talking about it now. And we need to be able to continue delivering care. And we've got a group of care professionals who are struggling with that for any number of reasons. And we also have communities. So we are talking about the pandemic right now, um, as in coronavirus, but we've got pandemic layered upon pandemic. Um, so I've just I've just upped the ante for you. You know, from, you're going to look so smart when you come up with all the answers for these. I just want to let you know, though, I'm not a mental health practitioner, so perhaps I'm not the best one to comment on some of the loneliness aspect of things, but certainly some of the other things. Yeah. So just to be clear. So one one of the things that we want you to because we've talked a lot about the the, the things that address the, the practitioner on a day to day basis: who to test, when to test, who to operate, where, where to operate, why to operate. We address that in the morning with you as well. And here it's about, okay, if you're thinking more system-wise, you're thinking more about how to organize the assets that you have to be the most applicable, the most responsive to the, the problem, whether it be a psychiatric, a serious psychiatric emergencies, which totally is at the end of the day a similar problem. How do you reallocate resource to meet a new need or a pandemic or an earthquake or a fire? So or let's, a let's start. Or a, oh, yep. right. Now we go. So in other words, lots of... Yeah, yeah well, I mean, as you say, protests. I mean, so from the standpoint, yeah. it's, I think what's interesting has been, we've actually had a pause and we've had global solidarity and we're seeing as we are reentering and, and coming out of our safe shelters, uh, we're probably going to see some of the same things that we were having before. Yeah. One other thing I would throw into your list is strikes because <sighs> frankly, a lot of the response that we have to do from strikes actually helped me a lot in transitioning over to New York because I had had so much experience in dealing with strikes and the flexibility there that going to New York in, in COVID were similar types of needs as far as the initial ramp down. Mm. Um, so it's just something to think about. There, there's some parallels there. They're not exactly the same. Fascinating. So this brings back to the question, how do you learn from varied experiences to optimize for the future? So let's, let's, uh, let's ask you, let's go to some questions that along those lines. Yeah. Tell me about your experience and what do you think of the need to have specific committees that are designed to help take on these challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think that the most important thing you can have is a multidisciplinary committee that is well-functioning because you need to be able to communicate and understand all the ramifications of the decisions you make. It really has to involve nursing and physicians and patients as well, if you can. And I think that that the critical nature of that committee, I can't underestimate or understate because that committee has to respond quickly. They have to be able to make decisions and they have to be able to move on a dime. And the second piece of that, though, is they need the data to make those decisions and establish the trigger points as to when they're going to do something. So it's great to say, hey, I'm going to stop doing surgery. Well, when? What is the trigger point at which you stop doing it? And when do you stop doing major surgeries versus when do you stop doing minor surgeries? What are those points? And how do you make that decision? And it has to be done in a multidisciplinary fashion. And it has to be done on a day-to-day basis. You can't meet once every two weeks. And what's really interesting is I've seen some real variability in terms of how Hicks structures work in hospitals. What's the Hicks structure? The Hicks structure is the incident command structure. 
Thank that's you. existing, the hospital incident command structure that exists in every hospital, UCSF at Kaiser and other places, yeah. um, as well as here. But some places the HIC structure is really involved in decision-making. In some, it's more sort of a, let's all get together and sing Kumbaya and talk to each other about what's coming up without real decision-making authority. And there's a big difference there. And and so I think, anyway, those are my thoughts initially. I, I want to um, have, I've got a couple of follow-up questions on that. Yeah. You said we need to follow the data. Yep. I'm thinking we need to follow the science. I mean, the data is just collecting because we're looking at what science tells us and that data is informing how we're doing that. And you had mentioned multiple disciplines. Those sound like they are with inside of the hospital because of so much of what we're dealing with is outside of mm-hmm. who are those other people and other team members and resources and assets in the community need to be in that planning so that we've got earlier surveillance and then mm-hmm. also a better coordinated response. There has to be a good connection, but they're not all sitting on the same committee, I would okay. say. Okay. Right. Because yeah. you have a real operational committee that has to make the operational details work because they've got to decide how much you ramp down. What do you do? When do you reopen? real decision-making authority. And then you have to have a separate team that develops the scenarios. What are we looking at? How is this going to, at a high level, you know, um, how many uh, beds do you need to plan for in this pandemic? Is it going to be an extra 100? Is it going to be an extra 50, an extra 300? That's a really important decision-making that may not lie with, with the way I describe it as sort of our our central decision-making operational committee that is in mm-hmm. the operating room, perioperative space. And then you've got sort of a system-wide or hospital-wide group that includes infectious disease, uh, experts from the state, others who are all coming in and informing the decisions and telling you sort of what's coming. They're telling you the size of the tidal wave, and you're at the ground level managing how that tidal wave is changing your practice. And if you mix them too much together, it's hard to keep straight what you need to be doing, if that makes some sense, is you really have to have operations separate from the projections, if you will. But you need the data on a real-time basis to really guide your decision-making. Because if you don't have that, and we had dashboards, to your point, of New York City and New York State, you know, COVID cases, COVID hospitalizations, COVID deaths. So we could follow that, look how that would compare to China, to Italy, to other places. And so that would give us some insight. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, we needed to know how many cases we had in-house and how was it really impacting us because we needed as a cancer center to maintain our volumes as long as possible and restart them as soon as possible. And so we didn't want to go down to zero as far as our cases. So if we weren't watching things constantly, we couldn't put that balance in play. So, Tom, to make it practical, how often should these committees meet and who should be on them? Well, I can tell you at, at our not, not during. Sorry, to be clear, yeah. not during the epidemic, but in pre- yep. just so they can be nimble, effective, and can get up and go on a dime. Yeah, I mean, I think your committee that there's several, there are a couple different committees and things that you want to structure. One is in the perioperative arena, and that's mostly what orthopedics is concerned with and all of that. You need a multidisciplinary committee with nursing, anesthesia, the head of surgery, 
you know, whoever's administratively in charge, both in nursing, and if you have different facilities, you need representatives of those different facilities to make sure that that's there. You need folks that have a connection to, but not necessarily present, the EVS people, you know, the scrub people, all those, the people to whom they report. So we had a nursing leader to whom all the um, folks in EVS and the folks doing the scrubs and that kind of thing reported to, and that was important in many of our decision-making. And facilities people as well. It's making sure you have those facilities people because there are times when you need to change from negative to positive pressure or from positive to negative, excuse me, in this COVID crisis. And if you don't have the facility people there, they won't even know what you're talking about. You can't do anything. And so, and you need clinical expertise there because you will be making triage decisions and those triage decisions must be made by clinical physicians. And I think that's the most important thing. And so what I would say is putting together that multidisciplinary committee and knowing who works well together, because this is not a process of politics. This is a process of process and making sure that it works. You can't be overly inclusive because you have to have a group. We had a group of of eight. If you get too big, it becomes totally non-functional. So it's got to be functional, but at the same time, you know, lead, you know, work well. I have Um, another really practical question on this. And again, listening around with different institutions. So when you do have those teams in place and they are tasked with gathering the information, one of the things that I hear over and over again from the C-suite is how important visibility and communication is important to building credibility. And so it is more frequent, the the, the communication, who's doing the communicating, where it is that they're communicating from, and also what they're communicating. And a lot of it is what we didn't know, what we're learning, what we do know. So empathy, a a huge amount, but a big piece that I keep hearing, great to have those committees, but if you don't, and this uh, Sachin Jane and Health Evolution there had several CEOs that were speaking about this. And it was really interesting hearing them talk about they would get online and they would have virtual town halls mm-hmm. on a daily basis, these daily briefings with their teams. And it was that leadership group that was making these decisions. So again, can you, I mean, these are some of the things that I'm hearing. Can this you speak to that? Really, really critical. And I would say that there are multiple levels of communication and you can't forget them all because leadership communication about the direction of the organization is taking what we're doing at the 20,000 foot level is really important so that the staff, the physicians, everybody knows what to expect and what's going forward. But at the same time, there are a lot of more specific questions that aren't going to be answered at that high level administrative meeting. So example for us, 35% of our CRNAs were out because they caught COVID. Okay. And so 35%. So, and some of them caught them iatrogenically within the hospital. So um, the question really is then, how do you communicate with that group who's very fearful now, really doesn't want to move forward and help us in any way because they're, they're feeling at risk. You need specific communication to the CRNA group, and that's not going to be done by the CEO of the hospital. You need to be able to understand their concerns, understand why that's a problem, and address them directly. So You need people at the table who are in those direct oversight and management roles who can then communicate to each group. One of the dangers I've seen and one of the downfalls is that the incident commanders want to control the communication so tightly that they just want the CEO to communicate. 
um, or just whoever's leading the effort at incident command. And everything needs to be approved by the committee for communication. That is really impossible, okay? Because that's great for the 20,000 foot view. It is not good for the local view. You need people who can get out to the people on the ground level because I can tell you the people cleaning the floors need to know about this and they're not going to hear it from the CEO. They need to understand the ramifications. So you need those communicators in that meeting. So Tom, we've built the infrastructure. We've got the communication piece figured out. Mm -hmm. We've gone past the the thing. We're sitting here. Let's just just, just be hopeful for a, a V recovery. It's January. All's good. What are we doing to prepare for the next one? We've, uh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about flexibility. You mentioned that concept early on. Talk about flexibility in staffing and also yeah. space utilization. Yes, absolutely. I think the flexibility that I'm thinking about for the future right now, number one, is critical care space for me. That's the highest on my agenda right now because we were overloaded in critical care and we couldn't respond fast enough to have enough critical care resources to make this work. We presently, we had a a critical care census that got doubled in the COVID environment, and it's still doubled, even though we're down to almost zero COVID patients now because they've all recovered, you know, but they are still sitting in our critical care units and they are, the, the census there is still starting to go down. But over the next six to 12 months, we need about 50% more critical care beds or capacity than we ever had before COVID. So how do we get that over a six-month period and have ICU availability for those patients? That's a challenge. So I am looking to the future and saying, look, we need a bigger ICU. We probably need a step-down unit that can convert quickly to an ICU if needed, even if it's not fully constructed as an ICU. So we can't be running ICUs at 100% capacity, which many hospitals do for a long, long time because they, it's too expensive to provide that care. There's got to be some flexibility there. So I think that having an ICU with a little bit of extra capacity, even if it's 10%, whatever it could be, and having that flexible step-down unit is going to be really critical. The other thing I think in terms of preparation, especially in a surgical arena, is having outpatient arenas where you can do surgery, where you mm-hmm. can tra- change those patients. I can tell you in our arena, one of the best things we had, we had a 24-hour stay facility that was three blocks away. We converted that to doing three to five-day stays, and they were overnight stay, and that made a big difference. And so the fact that we were able to maintain um, patients in those locations because we had enough 24-hour stay capability to do that made a big difference. And again, that's flexibility. Can you move patients to the right environment at the right time? So I think the flexibility in terms of the Building is there. I think we talked about that. And that's OR capacity. It's beds. What can you flex over to new beds at a given time? Do you have a plan for that? Maybe it's taking over a clinic. Maybe it's taking over some other area. But if you don't have that in the back of your head, you're not going to think about it. So that's the flexibility in, in space I'm thinking about, that you can't have everything so tightly planned that you have no flexibility. The second thing is flexibility in staffing. And I can tell you that we're undergoing a big process right now, looking at every employee who worked from home. And this is a little more challenging and is very difficult, you know, I think discussion because people are very, very much define themselves as going to work, right? So as we start looking going forward, 
can we provide additional flexibility on the space side by having more people work from home in a normal situation? So post-COVID, are we going to have people come in two days a week and work from home three days a week? And how can we do that? And we're actually looking at every role in the hospital and research you know, setting to say who could potentially work from home long term and how is that going to work? And they need to be connected with us for sure as an institution. So does that mean coming in two days a week, three days a week? Not sure, but I think that kind of discussion and allowing people to be flexible. And the third piece, and so that the roles have to be flexible in terms of what you can do coming in and out quickly if you need to be. The last thing I would say is you need the technical resources to allow you to do that. A lot of places, WebExes would go down, Zooms would go down. There wasn't enough technical capability to actually do what you had to do. And that's challenging. The last piece is having the data resources, dashboards, that can be easily constructed on the fly to find you the data that you need. So those are all the flexibility that you need. If you can pull it together, it can bode well for the future. Does Tom, that make I sense? Had, it does. And I, I had a question around when you're talking about flexibility, one of the things also is mobility and mm-hmm. agility. So we're talking about, we're thinking, you know, the the conversation that we're having, what I'm hearing in my head is that we're talking about virus an outbreak of COVID, what does it look like when you've got some type of a natural disaster? And it's not a function of just telling people to go home and to be able to work from home, their home isn't there. What does it look like for us to be able to mobilize so that you, we are going to have ill and injured people. How do we mobilize the workforce and the response so that maybe Mm -hmm. it can respond either, you know, we've got a group of people that leave and go to that location Or how do we serve them in a remote way? Well, I think that the mobility and agility are what's really critical here. And you have to have the resources to allow that. So if we have a main facility in Manhattan and we're hit by a hurricane and, you know, the water is going to shut down the power, how do we then transition those people to other facilities, perhaps the one that's three blocks away that's unaffected? You know, how do we actually make those shifts in a very fast manner? That agility is really important. And most healthcare facilities are not good at that. It takes years to turn the Titanic or a large hospital system very often, right? So how do you provide that agility if you've thought about it in advance and you actually have a plan as to how work could change in the future, not dictate that it should change in that way, but how could it change? Then you have those options available to you when you sit down and you're facing this crisis because you can, you should know, for instance, how many, what percentage of your census is going to decrease every day that you shut down elective surgery and how is that going to affect your plan? Those kinds of numbers are things that I think are important for you and your institution to know. And it's different in different facilities. So I can't just tell you, hey, it's going to be 10% a day. It depends on the facility. But you need to know your facility and know what are the levers that you can pull to ramp up and ramp down and to ramp over and be mobile somewhere else. Yeah. And if you haven't thought about that in advance, you spend a good three or four weeks just deciding what your possibilities are rather than deciding what to do. And you can't afford those three weeks of let's explore what the possibilities are. You want to do that in advance. 
scenario planning, a lot of it. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Tom, um, actually, I think I was going to go to structural things, which I really like to talk about, but Sean and I have had this conversation as well that as we started looking into uh, what happened in the past two months, it was so interesting to see how those organizations that had planned for digital, they're already exploring it, could just ramp up. It was there, it was available, boom, off you go. You know, they take a little while to get really lined up, but it wasn't a matter of finding the right vendor. And uh, I was talking to you, actually, Tom, you talked a little bit yeah. about uh, your telehealth experience. And you now have three telehealth platforms that you guys have to figure out because you deploy them quickly, and now you have three of them. Something like right. this. You want to talk about yeah. that? No, absolutely. It was it was challenging because we had an approved sort of HIPAA approved, you know, installation that we were going to use, but that couldn't scale as fast as some of the other things. So we ended up using a lot of Zoom. We used a lot of FaceTime. We used things that in the traditional healthcare environment because of HIPAA protections would not be allowed. So that was very challenging because I think a lot of the traditional ones were not as scalable as you would like. And so you have to make compromises as you do that. And it's unfortunate, but we did. And now that everybody's familiar with it, we can shift to any resource we need to or want to. I think the, the other thing that I found was incredibly important in this crisis was the ability of IT to respond quickly to changes that needed to happen tomorrow. You know, how do you come up with an app that will actually um, ask questions of your employees so you can screen your employees before they go to work and they can walk in and see the the green on your screen to indicate that you have been approved to go to work. You have to have an agile IT structure that can redeploy quickly to do those kinds of things. And IT is not used to doing that in that way in hospitals. So um, I had two members from the ATA association earlier. So, mm -hmm. and um, Mon Johnson and then Joe Vader, and they commented on this uh, very very well. And one of the things that they said, first of all, to your point was all the different ways that we, the different technologies. And the first thing that they said, just a phone call made a huge mm -hmm. difference. So, and, and mm -hmm. it was available to so many people. So rather than trying to have a computer and what's your internet access, they got so much done by phone and particularly those folks who were at greatest risk. So there was, right. there was that that they were thinking about. And the other part, you know, when you talk about your IT teams, Part of this is a culture that we've created, and that culture is being resistant or fearful and protective from the standpoint of we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't do that, as opposed to in the moment when it's not a function of you're not allowed to, you have to. It mm -hmm. was still very hard, the mental shift to be able to make that because you're, you're just so ingrained, like that would be not right, that would be dangerous, that would be, would it was very fear-based because of the intense penalties that are put in place for any of these violations. So I think that that's, you know, something that we need to think about well, is how do we develop those mindsets? I think the other thing you're dealing with, Shauna, in hospitals is the silo mentalities. And mm -hmm. that is a really difficult thing to deal with because most of the IT people and the data people are used to spending months getting approvals from every which committee before they go live with anything. Okay, and suddenly you're in a situation where you have to do something this week. You can't possibly check with every committee and find out what the best way is. You're going to put something in that works. And, uh, you know, that is freeing in a way, but it also is scary for a lot of people in the yeah. hospital. And I can tell you that there were a lot of times when people were like, well, that's just not the way we do things. And it's like, 
That was we exactly what to. they said. <laughs> we have to do them. This it was way. the attitude that right was the issue. Right. So how do you solve that? And we, we can describe the problem, but I want to get yeah. to solutions. So you, you know that's an issue. How do you solve it? Is that a directive? Is that a communication? Is it kumbaya? Bring anybody in the room? What worked for you? I think there are two things that worked. One is the senior leaders were very direct in saying something has to be done quickly. It has to be done here. But interestingly, there's one interesting anecdote, I think, to me is one of the first things I did when I established the emergency committee that we were looking at periop services and what we're going to do is I also brought in a data team. And we had three people who were going to develop the dashboard. We've got a great dashboard within three days of everything we needed. And the first thing I was told is, you can't show this to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> because because it's too good and everybody else is going to want it and, and you're going to threaten all of uh, all of the things that have been done in the past. And so for two weeks, we didn't show anybody because you know it was thought that we were getting into too many other people's areas and people would be upset. And then finally, people looked at it and they said, oh, this is really good. We need this. And they brought it to the higher level, but it was, you know, it was playing the balance is getting what you need at first without showing it to everybody. So it was developing sort of in a vacuum, if you will, which is not the ideal. It stunts works. You develop it and then you go live with it and you're a little bit careful about the communication. Then eventually everybody's going to want it. And so you make sure that you're willing and able to share it immediately as soon as that's more open. But in the initial couple of weeks of the pandemic, and I think in any crisis, people are still holding on to their previous values, no matter how bad the crisis is. And so you need to loosen that up a little bit. That's all. And speaking of loosening it up, one of the things that I've heard from a lot of the frontline responders, that getting over that um, resistance has Mm -hmm. been by moving the decision making closer to the problem and empowering Mm -hmm. people there. That that actually, and, and what I've heard from many people is that they've never had such a strong sense of camaraderie and clarity yes. of purpose when they have been empowered to say, if you see the problem, work as a team, figure it out. And so rather than trying to have this command and control structure on things that are really oftentimes operational, we need to solve that particular problem. That's what I have heard is that to get over this, rather than trying to do a central, it's like push the decision making as close to the problem and the solution as you can. So you want to care to respond to that and what, what you'd recommend? Yeah, no, I agree you need to push it down, but you also have to have the senior leaders to be able to respond. And I don't mean to stop, but they have to know what's reasonable. And a couple of decisions that were pushed down that I think were really critical, I think, in our COVID response. One was the nurses on the floor and the person on the floor needed scrubs. There were no scrub machines on the floor. So one of the nurses in the OR said, well, let's just give them one of ours. We have two. You know, and we said, okay, within an hour, we had the scrub machine moved to a different floor because IT was willing to support it. And they were able to put scrubs on the COVID floor so that everybody could get their own scrubs and feel safe and not have to go home and wash their COVID yeah. stuff. I know that's, but that's sort of where you go to the ground level. Another example of that was, you know, the urgent care center saying, we can't diagnose our COVID patients fast enough. And we were like, well, what do you need? And they go, we need a CT scan. And we said, okay, well, by the end of the day, we had them a CT scan. We sent them the arrow CT from the operating room because the people in the operating room were willing to ship it down without checking with anybody. And believe me, I heard from the spine surgeons the next day <laughs> that, <laughs> that why, why Where are you go? shipping? Where did it go? But it was necessary and it had to be done. You know what I mean? So those kinds of things 
can work because it was their brand new Aero CT that they just got in a week before. <laughs> so <laughs> they were not happy with the fact that we set it down below, but it worked. And so, yes, that it has to go down to the lower level and you have to make rapid decisions. You can't let it trickle up through the decision-making tree. Okay. In the last minute yeah. of, of the session, I just want to talk a little bit because you mentioned this idea of flexibility. If you had to build a new hospital, yep. what considerations would you have in terms of how you might restructure it? Um, I think there's two things. I would put ambulatory surgery and 24-hour stays separate from the hospital to provide that flexibility if you can at all, okay, because you need that flexible space. I would make sure that you have space that's convertible to an ICU if you need it because, and I would plan for a more robust ICU in terms of number of beds than you would normally plan for. I think that that's a really important thing. And you need more monitored spaces that can be converted to an ICU. One example of that is having a robust PACU. If you have a robust PACU, you might be able to convert that to ICU very quickly. So I think that that's one possibility. So I'd build probably a big PACU that could convert to an ICU. I'd build step-down units, and I'd build a bigger ICU than I thought I needed. Hmm. Um, but you also talked about maybe not building as much administrative space because... Yes. I think a lot of work could be done at home. And I think that you ought to build it with that in mind. So you have less administrative space and people should be doing it from remote locations. Well, I think we covered a lot of things we can learn from the past and apply to the future. And whether it's in, what was it again? We had the pandemics and earthquakes and everything else lined up. Um, Fires and strikes. We've seen those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I will, from the standpoint of when you're talking about, like, some, like I said, some of the things that are on my mind that I hope that we're thinking about and planning for, because I think when we plan for them, we can prevent them. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, from the standpoint of no, we love, we're a hero loving culture. We love all of those stories around it. Nobody gets excited about the catastrophe that never happened, unless, of course, you're in public health, (laughs) which we love preventing them. But, um, you know, one of those things, I think, as we start thinking about what could possibly happen, what could possibly go wrong, what I'm worried about right now is the drop in childhood immunizations. Mm-hmm. And we see how rapidly those go. These are things that are preventable. So when we start taking a look at what could possibly go wrong, A, we can prevent some things. B, when they do happen, because they will, we will be better prepared. And I think it's a way of actually helping us to build in resilience. And that resilience is what's going to keep us safe as responders so that we can do the work of caring. And that's, I think, my greatest concern is if we don't take care of the people who keep things running and keep us healthy and recovering or dying in peace, then we are really in a bad space. And I, I, I know that we're better people and we're good, smart. We want to do the right thing. So I thank you so much for giving the insights around what we need to be thinking about, how we need to be preparing Mm -hmm. and yeah, doing it with empathy, kindness, caring, laughter, a lot of dancing and songs. I think my favorite scenes right now in New York are all the extubation dances. Mm -hmm. Um, When people are are extubated throughout the hospital, different hospitals have songs that they play over the loudspeaker and it's building the morale and the camaraderie that we cannot do this independently. It takes, we're all in it together and it's going to take us all to solve it. One of the best things at every night at seven o'clock to hear the pots and pans bang in New York was always a, a reminder to all of us what we're doing, why we're doing it, and uh, it made a difference. 
It so. was as much for the people who were clapping as the people who mm-hmm. were being cheered along. So, yep. Tom, uh, I'll, uh, I'll bid you by. I'm going to take a second with Shauna to uh, wrap things up. And uh, yep. but thank you again for participating and look forward to hearing more from you and the great work you're doing in New York. Wash thank your you hands. Be well. <laughs> we love New York. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, Shana, we're, we're coming to the end of our session. In about a minute, we're going to go into uh, two, three, actually, amazing symposia. That's right. We're going to go into a deeper dive. And there's a lot of, you know, we're, we're talking at the high concept level, and we're talking about a broad range of topics that give us the information that we need so that when we go into our local, our, our health systems, our, you know, with our own cities, with our own neighborhoods, we need to have that information, those tools and those resources but we want to spend a little bit of time going really deep on a very specific issue. So that's why we put the symposia together to allow people that time to one specific topic and go at it into de- into detail it to death. Awesome. And we got two in parallel and then one to follow. So up next is uh, Zero Biomet with uh, Maximizing Remote Care Management. And then the J&J, the Pusin, these Impact on Outpatient Dull Hip Arthroplasty. So all I have to do is select from your section, the, the schedule is the top, uh, just above our pictures here, there's a little bar that says schedule. You pull that down and then select one or the other, and they'll be both going live in about uh, one minute. So once again, it's been great. It's always good to be with you virtually. I have to say, I miss seeing you in real life. It's uh, so much fun at you on stage. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the virtual hug, it's, uh, I'm missing the real ones. <laughs> <laughs> let's get this let's get this recovery off the on the, on the road and try right. to begin a push and so let's yeah. see what we can do on to our symposium great thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the digital orthopedics podcast we aim to provide our global audience with practical and actionable knowledge for modernizing the way they deliver care to the orthopedic patient If you like the podcast, please rate us on your favorite player or tell a friend. It only takes a minute and it makes a huge difference to us. Many thanks to our friends at Outcomes Rocket, the Health Podcast Network, and our producer, Dr. Sheila Toro, for their work on this season. Be well, stay safe. See you next time on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.